Good morning again. So this week we are in Ezekiel chapter 7, covering verses 1 to 14. And here we learn a new name for God, Yahweh Maka, the Lord who strikes the blow. So let's pray. Father, thank you for everything you've done. And Lord, we also want to thank you for the hard times in our lives because it's through the hard times that we grow. And as we get into this passage, Lord, you're going to show us that you are the Lord who strikes the blow. That's part of what you do. And we're going to find out about that today. So help us to have open hearts to understand why we go through some difficult times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start with a memory verse, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, nice big voices. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. Okay, last week in chapter 6, God revealed his heart to us. He told us how sin affects him. How did he describe it? He is crushed by our sin. He is broken by our sin. Smashed to pieces. Our sin really does affect God. It affects him personally. So, what is sin? It's rebellion against God. And one of the sins that we commit is idolatry. And idolatry is putting something else above God, making something else more important than God. And we leave our first love. Something else becomes more important to us, our first priority. And last week we saw that one of the things that caused the hearts of the people to turn away from God was sexual immorality. And... As you look around, nothing's changed since Adam sinned. You know what happened there? He was made in the image of God. Then, when he sinned, his nature changed. He became corrupted. He was now in the image of Satan. Satan lies, we lie. Satan steals, we steal. Satan kills, we kill each other. You know, Left to our own devices, if God didn't intervene, we would destroy ourselves. Look at the pre-flood world. So. God wants to bring us back into his family. And last week we saw that just as it was for the Israelites, so it is in our culture today, in our society today. We still struggle with the same sins and temptations. Now, what is true repentance? Well, it's understanding how our sin affects God, that it breaks his heart. That's where true repentance starts. And we talked about last week, that if we only want to change something because it's affecting me in a certain way, then that's not true repentance. That's me trying to help me and not me trying to please God. So there's a selfish reason, a selfish motive for repentance, and there's a genuine motive for repentance, and you know which is which, because if we have the right motive for repentance, it'll be because we love God and therefore loathe ourselves for all our sins 
because they cause the heart of God to be broken. And then we will want to repent of all sin and to change as quickly as possible. Why? Because all sin hurts God. If we're just looking to repent from a couple of sins, a couple of things that might be causing us pain in our lives, in our relationships and stuff like that, then we know that that's just selfish. Because the other sins we're committing, we don't care if they're hurting God. You see what I mean? So, this week, we're going to learn that the purpose of God's discipline is always to bring us back into relationship with himself. That's a major theme, and it's something that's carrying on. These people needed to know this. You consider their circumstances, being in exile, about to go through a horrible uh, siege, and God has to keep reminding them, I'm doing this for your good. And secondly, God reveals more of his character when he reveals himself to us by a new name, Yahweh Maka, the Lord who strikes the blow. And basically, God will always judge sin and God will always discipline his children. And God's patience has limits. God will not always strive with men. If you remember back to the pre-flood days, God said, my spirit will not always strive with men. Genesis 6.3 Therefore, repent while you can before the judgment or discipline comes. Number four, if I refuse to surrender even just one part of my life to God, then I would not be successful in fighting temptation in any area of my life. So if one part of my life I want to hold to myself and think I'll just work on this area over here, it's not going to work. If I don't give up all parts of my life to God, then I'll never be successful in any parts of my life. So let's read chapter 7, just verses 1 to 17. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. (laughs) Do you see a bit of repetition here? It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Remember we talked last week, that was places for idol worship. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. Verse 10. Behold the day. Behold, it has come. It's talking about the day of judgment. It's near. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude, none of them, again the repetition, 
nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come, the day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So, bit of background. We're talking about the children of Israel. They've been rebelling against God for a long time. And God has been warning them faithfully that if you don't repent, I'm going to send the Babylonian army to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. The false prophets are saying, nah, that'll never happen. God is going to deliver us. And the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Ezekiel in Babylon, he's already been taken captive. They're telling them, no, you need to repent or God will judge you. Now they're saying, it's too far gone. It's too late. So verse 14, they have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle. For my wrath is on all their multitude. The sword is outside, and the pestilence and famine within. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword, and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble, and every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, boldness on all their heads. So, lovely encouraging passage there, right? <laughs> really important that we get the context here. There's key phrase. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And we went into this last week and explained the three steps of coming back to God. This is the goal. God wants us to come back into a relationship with him. And for example, I will do to them, in verse 27, I will do to them according to their weight, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And what's God's purpose? Well, he wants restored fellowship. He wants us to come back to fellowship with him. So concerning the nations, this is going back a couple of weeks or a few weeks, God's got two reasons for these judgments. One is for the nations around God is making a name for himself so that all people will know that he is the only God and can therefore, if they choose, come to him and be saved. So again, we talked a few weeks ago that the nation of Israel, whether they obey or disobey, they still are light to the Gentiles because God is still making a name for himself through them. And secondly, concerning the nation of Israel, God is doing all this for the singular purpose of bringing them back into fellowship with himself then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, that's the first topic today. God disciplines us to bring us back into fellowship with himself. So we'll just read verses 1 to 4. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you, and I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. 
So verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. What was Ezekiel? He's a prophet, yeah? So he received a message from God. Then what did he do? He had to share that message with the people. Now, we too are God's ambassadors. We're not prophets, but we are God's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. We have been given a message to share with the world, and we sang about it this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now verse 2, it says, To the land of Israel. So remember that Ezekiel, where is he living? In Babylon, right? Yep. This message is to the people who are still living in Jerusalem and Judah, who hadn't been exiled or deported in the first two deportations when the Babylonian army had gone and defeated them twice already. So at the time Ezekiel spoke this, Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. It's not completely conquered. And so basically this is a message to those who are still in the land who are about to be conquered. Now there's an application for us from this in verses 2 and 3. And I've called it, Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. It says, an end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. So basically, three times God says, it's the end. Now, this should put a bit of worry into our hearts, a bit of fear. Not for our salvation, it's not about that, okay? But God's patience does have limits. God's judgment upon the Israelites was soon to come. All right. So like the pre-flood world of Noah's day, they got destroyed in the flood. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed by fire and brimstone. The generation of the Israelites that died in the wilderness, 40 years, the longest funeral procession ever. And later, in the future, those who take the mark of the beast in the last half of the tribulation, it's too late for them. They can't be saved. Once they take that mark, it's game over for them. They've sold their soul to the devil, literally. And basically at the end of the tribulation, it's the same as what it was at the flood. It's too late. It's the same as what it is here. It's the end. An end has come. An end to God's grace. God is a holy God and cannot let sin go unpunished. And if we allow sin to harden our hearts because of continued unbelief, God's judgment for unbelievers or God's discipline for believers is the only remedy. So Hebrews 3, 12-15 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about the children of Israel who 40 years wandered and that generation never entered the promised land because they kept on sinning and their hearts became hard through the deceitfulness of sin. The same thing can happen to us. 
As a believer, I can continue to sin and not repent. And like if I'm the clay and God is a potter and the clay gets hard, there's only one thing to do. Smash it and start again. And so if we refuse to repent and our hearts get harder and harder, it's not a salvation issue, but it is a discipline issue. And God will have to severely discipline us like he's doing with the children of Israel. It's not a judgment that's going to destroy the nation. The nation will continue. So basically, the children of Israel, they're still God's kids, right? They're still God's children. But they're under his divine discipline. God will not reject his people, okay? But he will discipline them. But for the unbeliever, who repeatedly rejects the Holy Spirit's conviction of their sin, and you can read John 16, 8 to 11, where it says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. If they continue to reject it, they will suffer eternal judgment. Now, verse 2. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. So, basically, the entire nation is going to be judged and come under the control of Babylon. So, four corners, like north, south, east and west, it just means the whole land. Now, David Guzak has some good advice. He says, if something can't go on forever, it won't. It is wise to consider the end before it actually comes upon you. And Ezekiel hoped to bring this wisdom to rebellious Israel. So, again, I think it's good advice. Consider where your sin will lead you before you continue in it. One day the consequence of your sin will catch up with you. And verse 3, I will judge you according to your ways. God's justice is always fair. The penalty will match the crime, so to speak. And verse 4, My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. So God's judgment will be severe and complete because that's what they deserve. That's what's required to bring them back to Him. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So what's the purpose of the judgment? They will know that He is the Lord, that He is God. They will come back into relationship with their covenant God. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is kind of like the New Testament version of this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, what's the purpose of God calling us? to be conformed to the image of his Son. God is making the nation of Israel into his image. He's molding them, pressuring them, disciplining them, so they will eventually, and that's what's predicted at the end of the tribulation and in the millennial reign, they will be faithfully serving him. Transformed by the Holy Spirit. Now, as believers, sometimes we wonder why God allows certain things to happen or he withholds certain things from us. And I just want to point out that if something doesn't fit God's purpose for us and God's purpose is to make us more like Jesus, then he won't give us that or he won't allow us to experience that. But if it is, if that thing or that event does suit God's purpose, which is to make us more like Jesus, then he will allow it. So that's why it's always for our good. 
Now we come to verse verses 5 to 9. Yahweh Maka, the Lord who strikes the blow. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It is dawn for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Remember, places for idol worship. High places. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. So, basically, I kind of imagine that Ezekiel has been given this premonition, this vision of the Babylonian army attacking Jerusalem, and he's kind of seen it in his head. And if you listen to his language here, you can sense the urgency, this exclamation marks, this really, really urgent. He's saying, guys, it's coming. It's coming. It's soon. And for us, we are living in the last days before God's judgment, which is for us is called the tribulation and the second coming of Christ. Is there the same sense of urgency in our voices and our hearts as we seek to reach the lost for the kingdom of God? So check your own hearts. and Is there a sense of urgency? We know that the rapture is close. Are we reaching out, doing everything we can? to share the love of God with those so they don't have to go through the tribulation. And verse 6, a quote from Feinberg, and he explains his phrase, it has dawned for you. He says, In a beautiful play on words, impossible to reproduce in English, Ezekiel pictured the end as though it had been quiescent or asleep, but would be awakened and aroused to come against the people of the land of Israel. And Morgan says, Thus the prophet told the exiles in Babylon what Jeremiah was telling them in Jerusalem, that the opportunity for recovery was past, that the nation had overstepped the boundaries of the forbearance and waiting of God. Pretty serious, eh? Acts 17, 30 and 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. What's the assurance of? The coming judgment, right? It's true. We are to tell all people to repent because there will come a day when Jesus will judge the world. And you look around and you see all the fulfilled prophecies, and I would say that there isn't much time left. It's like judgment is about to dawn on this world. Now, praise God, we won't be here, but we should have compassion on those who aren't saved yet, so they won't have to go through the tribulation. Now, verse 9, it says, I will repay you for all your abominations, and the word abominations means something detestable, offensive, and abhorrence. And it's referring to their idols. And we went through that last week, what that involved. So I just want to focus on one thing here. 
all sin is disgusting to God, because it says there that I will repay you for all your abominations. All these offensive things. Sin is offensive to God. Now, is it just some sins that are offensive to God, or is it all sins that are offensive to God? Mm. So, I've done this in my own life. I've justified some sins in my life. I've said, yeah, that stuff I'm doing over there is really bad, but this stuff over here is not so bad. How can I say that? Why do I say that? Well, I've been deceived. Now, who's deceiving me? It's my own heart. Okay, it's my own heart. And I'm walking by sight. I'm walking by what I'm thinking and feeling, my emotions. I'm walking by sight. What's the opposite of that? It's walking by faith. And you can see 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We need to trust the word of God to be the lamp to our feet and the light to our path and allow it to discern the true motives of our hearts. So, you remember a few years ago when we had the vote for homosexual marriage. What was the whole thing there? If it's love, it must be right. Something like that. That slogan. Yeah. That's a good example. And, and people do the same thing with fornication today, you know, having sex out of marriage. It's love. It feels good. How can it be wrong? That's walking by sight. That's walking by your feelings and emotions. It's not walking by truth, you see. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So our heart is deceitful above all things. And if we don't see sin as being wicked and abhorrent and disgusting and vile, then it just means that our heart is deceiving us. We need to get back into the word. 2 Corinthians 5.7 For we walk by faith, not by sight. So faith means truth as determined by the word of God. That's reality. And not by sight, which is our feelings and emotions following our sinful and deceived heart. Our sinful nature, basically. So the application here, God will judge sin. And I've got a quote here from a guy called Alexander regarding, Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. The message closed by Stunning the exiles with a new name for God, the Lord who strikes the blow, Yahweh Mecca, the one who would now judge Judah. So, <laughs> you know what? Some people invent this idol in their heads and they say, my God would never judge anyone. My God would never send anyone to hell. Well, as Ray Comfort would say, he couldn't because he doesn't exist so this is a reality check for those who have invented a false god or idol in their heads, a god who would never send anyone to hell. It's in black and white. It's a part of who God is. It's a part of his nature or character to judge sin. He has to. It's part of him. Just like he loves, it's part of his nature. He always will love, but he always will judge sin. He is the Lord who strikes the blow. Why? Because he is by nature perfect and holy. If he didn't judge sin, then he wouldn't be perfect and holy. So he has to judge sin. And that's why he reveals himself here as Yahweh Maka.
the Lord who strikes the blow. And now another application. Why is God's discipline so painful? And Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. And a quote here. Once again, the ultimate restoration is in mind. The severe judgment for their idolatry would show that their idols were powerless to save them. In destroying their reliance on idols, they could come back to true relationship with Yahweh. Do you see what God's doing? He's taking away the things that he's trusting in. He's taking away the things they're relying on, the things that they're getting satisfaction from. I've got a little story just recently happened. Actually, it's happening right now. I've got a horse and I need to put ointment in its eye. And around the other horses, he doesn't really want to be around people. And so, because obviously he'd prefer to be around the other horses. So what do I do? I take away the other horses. I put this horse all by itself. And now the horse is really lonely. It's got no company. So what does it do? I go out to the paddock and it runs to me. The thing that it was wanting more has been taken away from it, the other horses, and now it comes to me. And so it makes it easier for me to catch it and to put the ointment into its eye. So basically, that horse doesn't like its conditions that it's in right now because it's missing its friends, right? God takes things away from us that we love and that we want, but that aren't good for us. Does that make sense? And that's why it hurts. He's taking away the things that we're leaning on, that we're desiring, because they are not good for us. If that horse kept following the other horses, it would never be healed. And his eye would end up being more and more infected and had to be removed. So, in the same way, if we keep on leaning on those things and following those things and having our hearts turn from God and turn to sin, it'll end up destroying us. So, here's something that's important to consider. If we make anything an idol, if we make anything more important than God, watch out, because what will God have to do? Take it away. Okay. God is a jealous God, jealous in a good way, because he wants the best for us. And he knows that those things will destroy us eventually. Now, someone once said, we will never know that God is all we need until God is all we have. And it's only when we come to the place where we understand that God is all we need, because God has taken away all the things we thought we needed, that the following verses in John will be true for us and we will experience the fullness of joy that Jesus promised. Jesus said in John 15, 9-11, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So, what's God's desire for us? To have fullness of joy, to live the abundant life. Yep. The devil comes to kill, steal and destroy. Jesus comes to give us life and life abundantly. John 10.10, I think. So, again, I'll read Hebrews 12.11. Now, no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, 
Afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So another benefit is that we learn to live righteously. We're not depending on those things, even good things. The fruit of righteousness. Trusting in the Lord. Now, verses 10 to 13. I've titled this from James 4.7. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, I read verses 10 to 13. Behold the day. Behold, it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Does that make you think of something in the Old Testament? I'll tell you in a minute. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of them multitude. None of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn, for wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So, verse 10, it says, Behold the day, behold it has come. Now, consider the circumstances here. Ezekiel is in competition with the false prophets. What are the false prophets saying? Everything's going to be fine. All the people are going to go back to Jerusalem. All the previous two exiles, the people who have taken the previous two deportations, all go back. All the gold implements will be taken from Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's the message from the false prophets. It's all going to be fine. We have the temple here. We're still worshipping the temple. We're still sacrificing the temple. Plus everything else. <laughs> all the other idols and other sects and reality they're involved in. And Ezekiel has been saying for the last few years, that if you don't repent, there's going to be a day of judgment. And the people are saying, yeah, right. You've been saying that for years. Guess what? Ezekiel is telling him, it's come. It's just around the corner. And verse 10, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Now, this is a reference to Aaron's rod that budded, and you can read the story in Numbers 17. To give you the background, there was an insurrection against God's chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron, and all the people said, you know, you take too much upon yourself. Why should you be the boss? Why are you telling us what to do? Why they do it? Pride. It was a pride of the people that caused them to reject God and therefore challenge the God-appointed leadership authority of Moses and Aaron. Now, it's really clear in the Old Testament that God had confirmed Moses as being his prophet in many different ways. So back then, God had threatened to wipe them out, all out, all the Israelites, and start again with Moses, basically, because of their rebellion against him. But Moses prayed for them, and God spared the majority of the congregation, though some were killed by the judgment that happened then. So I'm just going to read uh, Numbers 17, 8 and 10. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, and had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony, that is the ark, to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. So what is this rod that budded? Why was it there? 
Well, here in Ezekiel, the symbol of Aaron's rod that budded is used to show that the people were again rebelling against divine authority and refusing to submit to God and his chosen messengers, the prophets. And, like then, the proud people, the rebels, were close to being judged. Really close to being judged. As it says in verse 10 there, to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. So it's a reference back to that. In verse 11, it says, Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. So, again, another characteristic of the nation of Israel a lot of violence in the land, you know, murders and all kinds of things happening. The Bible says there was blood from one end of Jerusalem to the other. Now, how is it different to our culture today? <laughs> it's not. All right. What do we do? Well, kill each other. There's murders. And then we come down a level. What do we watch? Murders, violence. We glorify it. What do we do for entertainment? Play violent video games, you know. And it goes on. So violent TV shows and movies, it all just feeds on itself and we get more and more violent. In verse 11 it says, none, none, and none of them. So how many are going to escape judgment? No one. So anyone who's deserving judgment will be judged. How do we escape judgment? What's the offer that God gives us? Well, we simply receive the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus' death on the cross by repenting and asking him to forgive us. Now, verse 12, it says, Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. Basically, there's going to be no one left in the city, and so there'll be no one selling and no one buying because there's no one there and it's all destroyed. And verse 13 is interesting. It says, For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. Well, you'd expect if he's still alive, why can't he go back? Well, because how long are they going to be in Babylon? 70 years. So this is the law of Jubilee. If you got into financial trouble and you had to sell your property in the country, on the year of Jubilee, which is every 50 years, it would go back to the original family. And so the property would always stay in the family over the centuries. What's Ezekiel saying here? He's making this really real for them. He's pointing out that the year of Jubilee would be, in effect, cancelled. They would not be able to return to the family homes because they would all be in Babylon. And verse 13, it shall not turn back. And a quote from David Guzik. Most of the time in the scriptures when God announces judgment, it is an implied invitation for repentance, whereupon God will relent from the announced judgment. That's what God wants, right? He wants us to come back. He doesn't like judging us. With this prophecy of Ezekiel, this was not the case. The judgment was coming. It shall not turn back. And I just remind you what we talked about before. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. You don't know when your last day will be. You know, if you're not a believer and you refuse God's invitation today, 
You might have a heart attack tomorrow, you might have a car accident tomorrow, or it may just be that your heart becomes so hard that you'll never ever receive it. And now, verse 13, it says, No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So, basically, I've got an application here. Sin corrupts and will eventually destroy us. A quote from Feinberg. Ezekiel indicated the foolishness of the man who thought he could strengthen himself in the very iniquity or sin which called down the wrath of God. Hardening oneself in sin would not accompany immunity from punishment. On the contrary, it would assure it all the more. Now consider some of the rich people. These people have lots of money who seem untouchable. They're strengthening themselves in their sin. You know, so they think they're untouchable. They think that nothing's going to happen to them. But all they're doing is assuring their judgment. They might not get judged while they're living on this earth. They might you know, live a good life to the very end. But I tell you what, when they stand before God and some of the things that these rich people have done, they will have a lot to answer for. So, on a level for us as believers, how foolish is it to think that we can sin and still be strong? And I thought about it and I think of it like this. Sin is like rusting metal or rotting wood. Have you seen those old cars? You know, my friends had old Holdens and the floor would have rusted out, had put mats on the floor so your feet wouldn't go through, you know? So, eventually... A house or shed made of rusting metal. I've got one at Wongatha actually, it's condemned. All the support beams are all rusting and it's literally falling down on top of itself. Sin corrupts our character. We will eventually destroy ourselves. We will eventually destroy our lives because sin will cause us to do what we thought we never would. So basically, sin corrupts us. It's like rust eating metal away or wood rotting. We change. And eventually, we will do things we never thought we would. We will destroy ourselves. Casting Crowns has this really good song. It's called Slow Fade. I've just got part of the chorus here. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to grey compromise and thoughts invade choices are made a price will be paid when you give yourself away people never crumble in a day daddies never crumble in a day families never crumble in a day it's always a slow process of decay and rot and so again no one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity you can think you're Strong, you can handle it, but you will not. Now, verse 14. One of the effects of sin is a weak and defeated life. It says, They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready, but no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all their multitude. So it says, No one goes to battle. And Morgan says, Sin's first manifestation would be the paralysis of the people, like the army. So that when the trumpet was blown for battle, and all was ready, none would move forward, being overcome by terror. 
and grief. And that's what the next verses describe. So imagine the people of Israel. They're thinking, you know, we've got the temple. We can defend ourselves. We've got this city which is strong. We can defend ourselves. Ezekiel is saying, no, you won't. You will not be able to defend yourselves. They were filled with this false hope from the false prophets. But again, it's just emotion. It wasn't the truth. Samson is a really good picture of this. Samson was feeling great when he allowed Delilah to put him to sleep on her lap. And of course, she cut off his hair. He lost his strength. And he didn't feel so good when he was captured by the Philistines without a fight. I'm going to read from Judges 16, 18 to 21. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, basically, if he cut his hair, he'd lose his strength. She sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she allowed him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him. See, the sin which we enjoy will eventually end up tormenting us. And his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before, as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Scary, isn't it? He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. So, figuratively speaking, the Israelites had lain down with their idols. They had been lulled into this spiritual sleep and they had given up their strength. They had walked away from their God. Their strength had left them. And it would be too late when they realized that they had no fight or courage or strength left in them to battle the Babylonians. And they too would end up in bronze fetters or shackles and led away to Babylon. So again, Ezekiel is accurately predicting that there would be no fight. It would just be a siege and that's it. And they'd be eating them. You know, We talked about this a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. So hungry that they'd be eating their own kids. So sin corrupted them, and their God-given strength and courage had left them, and the same can happen to us. Now, another application. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We are in a battle. Okay? So going back to talking about you know fighting in the battle, now we're applying it to us. We are in a battle, and our battle is against sin. It's against the lust of the flesh, the desires of our sinful nature. Now, what is the only way we can overcome sin, overcome the desires of our sinful nature? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans eight twelve to 13 from the NLT, it says, 
Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Why not? Because the power has been broken by Jesus when he died on the cross. We don't have to do what our sinful nature wants us to do. It's now our choice. Verse 13, For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So what's the secret to overcoming sin? If through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature. So it's not by our own resources, it's not by our own strategies, it's not just the accountability groups. All that's fine, but it all comes down to are you submitted to the Spirit of God? Are you walking with God? Those other things can be helpful, but the basics are that you need to be submitted, completely submitted to God. I must give God control of every part of me if I'm going to be able to resist the devil and have him flee from me. James 4, 7. If I choose to hold on to some sin that I'm not willing to give up, then it means that I'm not completely submitted to the Holy Spirit. If there's just one part of my life I'm not willing to give up, then I'm not submitted to the Holy Spirit because I'm doing what I want. Romans 8, 5 and 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now, this is talking about believers. When it says death, it's talking about not eternal death, not eternal damnation. Rather, it's just we're going to destroy our lives here. Okay, We'll still go to heaven but we're going to make a mess of our lives down here. So we can't have our cake and eat it too. All right? We can't walk in the Spirit and at the same time hold on to a part of our life which is not pleasing to God. I can't pick and choose what areas of my life I'm willing to surrender. Remember the song, I Surrender All? Yeah? It says, I surrender all doesn't say, I surrender most of my life. <laughs> if I choose to hold on to a sin, it could be bitterness, unforgiveness, an addiction, ungodly relationship, worldly things like pleasures and entertainment and all those kind of things. And especially if the Spirit is convicting me to give those things up, but I'm not willing to give those up yet, then I'm not submitted to the Spirit. It's as simple as that. As a result of that, I will be weak in every area of my life. Does that make sense? If I hold on to sin in one area of my life, I'm going to be weak in every area of my life because I'm not submitted to the Spirit and I'm not living by the power of the Spirit. That power is not available to me as long as I'm holding on to something that's not pleasing to God, some sin. So if I'm going to be effective in the kingdom of God, I must be pure and holy in every part of my life. So I've got an example here. The Israelites, when they entered the promised land, they fully obeyed everything God said about conquering Jericho. They followed the instructions down to the very last detail. But afterward, Achan stole some of the valuables from Jericho that were dedicated to the Lord. God said, it's all mine. You can't have any of this. You've got to dedicate it to me. But he said, oh, that garment looks nice. That gold looks great. I'm going to take some of that and bury it in his tent, or underneath his tent. 
This is what happened. Joshua 7. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Achan was a son of Kami, and etc., of the tribe of Judah. So, who was God angry with? The whole nation. One person did it. One person sinned. The others didn't even know about it. And next part, verse 2, Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy at the town of Ai, east of Bethel, near Beth-Avon. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since there are so few of them, don't make all our people struggle to go up there. It's up a big hill, you know. Why make us all work? So, like with Samson, notice a confidence in their own abilities and their complete lack of understanding that God had departed from them. Okay. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. So, not surprisingly, unconfessed or hidden sin in one area led to failure in another area. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads and bowed down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we'd have been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people living in the land hear about it, they will surround us and wipe our name off the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? So, basically, they've been defeated. Up to this point, the people living in the land of Canaan, all these big people, these big cities and big armies, were scared of the Israelites because they'd always been winning, because God had been with them. Now, things were different. They just lost a battle. What if they all you know, joined up and joined forces? And That's what Joshua was thinking. Oh, no. And God says in verse 10, But the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. So again, if one person does it, then it's as good as them all doing it. And this is an interesting church dynamic. This is why you need to deal with sin in the church as well. You can read First Corinthians about that. It applies personally and it also applies in a church setting. That's why church discipline is very important. Verse 12. That is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. Why? God has to judge sin. I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up. Command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies unless you remove these things from among you. So we can apply that to us. 
God is saying, you'll never have victory, you'll never overcome your enemies, the sins, the struggles that you're facing, unless you remove those things from among you. You've got to give everything up. It's all or nothing. We're either completely submitted to God, meaning every area of our lives, or we are not submitted. And James 5, 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's 100% submission, every part of our lives. We can't justify sin in one area of our lives by doing well in another part of our life. I've done that. Also, we can't rely on past victories. It doesn't work like that. I might have done well for a while and I think, oh, I've got that covered. No, I don't. They defeated Jericho, but then because they moved away from God, they were defeated. So in the kingdom of God, purity equals power. Okay, Purity equals power. All it took for Satan to defeat the Israelites was to corrupt one man. And the nation was doomed. All it takes for Satan to corrupt us is to have one little foot in the door. One little thing that we compromise on. And the rest of us is doomed to fail. So, the six things we can pull out of this passage from Joshua. It only took one man's sin to bring the whole nation to their knees. As a result, their courage turned to fear. They went from being victorious to being defeated. They were set apart for destruction because all sin will be judged. They would not experience the power of God until they repented of their sin. It says, I will not remain with you any longer unless you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. And we will not be able to overcome any sin until we're willing to give up all sin, even the pet sins that we enjoy and we think we have under our control. It says in verse 13, You will never defeat your enemies until you remove the accursed things from among you. So, in conclusion, what I choose today will affect me tomorrow. It's a law of cause and effect, or sowing and reaping. So to sum up what we've done today, I'm just going to read Galatians 6, 7-9. And you think about the people of Israel in this situation. They've mocked the justice of God. They've rejected God's warnings and they're going to be defeated by the Babylonians. But think about this. Apply this to yourself now. Don't be misled. Galatians 6, 7-9. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So Father, I do thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your love. Lord, you were so patient with the Israelites. You gave them so many warnings. And those first two deportations, you pulled out the righteous people, Lord. They pulled out the ones who didn't deserve to be judged in that siege where many, many people died of famine and by the Babylonian army and disease. Lord, you're merciful to not judge the righteous with the wicked. 
But Father, we just want to come before you now and just ask you to examine our hearts. Help us to see if there's anything in our lives which we've been convicted upon or convicted by you on, where we need to give it up, where we need to say, you know what, you know, I really don't want to give this up, but unless I do, I'm not going to have victory in the other areas of my life. I'm not going to be walking with the Lord. Lord, you demand total surrender. We can't hold on to one part of our life and expect to be victorious in another part of our life. We need to let it all go, give it all to you, complete surrender, complete dedication to you, to lay our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice. We need to put all of ourselves on the altar and then we'll be transformed and not conformed. Transformed into the image of God and not conformed into this world, the ways of this world. So help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.